0: Cassie Brant is going to preach today. Come on, Cassie. Did I didn't you take, take your my... notes, I don't think. Um, Wait a minute. Took... Yes, you did. Sorry about that. Yes, yeah. sure did. Just a little trick we do. Glad I numbered them, Ten. Glad I numbered them. <laughs> Just make sure they're in order. <laughs> Just the wrong away. Well, good morning. So last week, my kids were talking about words that they liked, their favorite words. So my 12-year-old's favorite word is kerfluzzled. not surprising, also not entirely sure that that's actually a word. My 10-year-old's favorite word is loyal, but she was very quick to note and point out to me that dragons are still the best thing ever, and just because her favorite word is loyal doesn't mean she's not still loyal to dragons. And then my conversation with my eight-year-old went something like this. I asked her what her favorite word was, and she said, gurgle. (laughs) So if you know my kids, none of this should surprise you at all. Then they asked me what my favorite word is, but I couldn't think of just one, because I love words. I love all the words. So I told them that more than individual words, I love expressions and idioms and figures of speech. They didn't know what I was talking about. So I said, well, you know, like the expression, don't cry over spilled and they were quiet. Then they said they were completely kerfluzzled as to why anyone would cry over spilled milk in the first place. <laughs> for as much as I love idioms, though, I feel just as strongly but in the opposite way about clichés. You know, these are the phrases that are overused to the point of becoming trite and flavorless. Like, everything happens for a reason or God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And my new favorite, least favorite cliche is one that has gained popularity over the last few months, thoughts and prayers. So it's not that thoughts and prayers aren't nice or welcome or even helpful. I mean, it's nice to know that someone's praying for you or thinking of you during a difficult time. But when compared to actually doing something to help, the sentiment of thoughts and prayers can fall disappointingly flat in the eyes of the recipient. We all experience loss. This is a part of the human experience. If we ourselves aren't on the receiving end of it, we know someone else who is. We see it all over our social media feeds and on the news every day. Death, betrayal, chronic illness, systemic injustice. And if I asked any of you to tell me about a time of loss in your own life or someone you love, I'm sure you would immediately be able to relay it to me in detail. These things stick with us. But what also sticks with us are the times when someone came to our aid in the midst of our own grief, the times when we didn't feel alone despite our pain. I want to talk about loss today and also the value of participating in each other's grief beyond just thoughts and prayers. So first, let's talk a little bit about loss and grief. Grief is the human response to loss. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross initially coined the five stages of grief, and then two more were added later. So the seven stages are shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, testing, and acceptance. It's said that people can fluctuate between any and all of these stages at any given time, and they may not hit every single one. These are more of a guideline of what someone might experience in a time of grief, and they're meant to help navigate someone through their own individual grieving process because the nature of grief is that it is a solitary experience. We feel alone and isolated, and we're the only one who knows what our own personal pain feels like. Stepping outside of ourselves, then, to participate in someone else's grief or to ask them to participate in ours can feel unnatural and a little bit invasive, maybe. But this is precisely why participation in someone else's grief can be such a gift. Jesus, as he often does, models this for us in the story of Lazarus in the book of John. The story goes something like this So Lazarus is extremely sick. His sisters, Mary and Martha, get a message to Jesus that their brother is in really bad shape. Jesus should drop everything and come now. So Jesus loves this family. This is the same Mary who poured perfume on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair and tears. So they have some history together. Despite this, and despite knowing what's going to happen, Jesus takes his time getting there, saying to his disciples, this sickness will not end in death. And yet, in the few days that it takes Jesus to arrive, Lazarus does, in fact, die. When Jesus arrives, it's been four days since Lazarus has died. And when Jesus gets there, Martha meets him, but Mary stays back. And I wonder at this point if she's upset with Jesus for taking so long to get there, and that's why she stays back, like she's proving a little point. When Martha sees Jesus, she says, Lazarus wouldn't have died if you had been here. And Jesus and Martha have a little exchange, and then Martha goes to get Mary, who is mourning with some family and friends. When Mary hears that Jesus is asking to see her, she goes quickly to meet him, and she brings her entourage of friends and family with her. And again, I picture her in the anger phase of grief. She initially stays back, but now that Jesus is asking for her, she storms over to him and lets loose on him. She throws herself at Jesus' feet and cries, "'Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died.'" Have you ever been in Jesus' position here? Seeing someone you love wracked with pain and despair and feeling helpless to do anything to alleviate their suffering? Or perhaps you've been the one lying on the ground, swallowed up by hopelessness and grief, wondering why, why no one's coming to help you. Jesus sees this desperation in Mary. We are told that he is deeply troubled and moved in spirit. He asks to be taken to the place where Lazarus is buried, and we get to what many know to be the shortest verse in the Bible at this point. Jesus wept. Just two words, but they pack a lot of punch. Why did Jesus weep? He knew the outcome, remember? He told the disciples that death wouldn't be the end of this story. Still, he wept. Jesus was grieved by his friend's grief. He was pained by their pain. This is empathy in its purest form. He knows everything will be okay. He knows it because he's going to do it. But he doesn't say it. He doesn't promise to offer up thoughts or tell them everything happens for a reason. No, he's participating with Martha and Mary in their grief. I recently experienced an incredibly traumatic time of significant loss in my life, and during the height of it, I had family members and friends who wept with me. In particular, I remember very vividly breaking down as I told a good friend what was happening in my life, and as I cried, she let out a gut-wrenching wail from deep within her that I can still hear reverberating through my mind when I think about it today. She could have just said, Wow, Cassie, that's awful. I'm so sorry. Which is what we say, and which is a perfectly acceptable and wonderful way to show support. I'm not minimizing the value of that response. It's beautiful, and it's comforting. But this woman took it a step further. She participated in my grief. My sorrow was her sorrow. My loss was her loss. And this woman has continued to participate. She checks in regularly with the question, How is your soul? My friend says to me, we're going to sit here together, in despair, for one minute. We will take it one second at a time if we have to, and once we've gotten through that first minute, we'll sit for another minute, and then another. One minute at a time, inch by inch, we are going to make it through. Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook and author of the book Lean In, lost her husband tragically and unexpectedly in 2015. I'd like to read a little excerpt from her newer book, Option B, about the funeral of her husband. She says, When we arrived at the cemetery, my children got out of the car and fell to the ground, unable to take another step. I lay on the grass, holding them as they wailed. Their cousins came and lay down with us, all piled up in a big sobbing heap, with adult arms trying in vain to protect them from their sorrow. Then I started singing a song I knew from childhood, Ose Shalom, a prayer for peace. I don't remember deciding to sing or how I picked this song. I later learned that it is the last line of the Kaddish, the Jewish prayer for mourning, which may explain why it poured out of me. Soon all the adults joined in, the children followed, and the wailing stopped." This is participation. So now back to Lazarus. So crying, Jesus arrives at the tomb of Lazarus, and once more it says he is deeply moved. Then this is where things start to get quite interesting. First, Jesus tells them, the people standing around, the entourage of friends and family, if you will, to remove the stone that is blocking the tomb. It's important to note that in this time, contact with a dead body or even touching a grave would mean seven days of being considered unclean, and the offender would have to undergo purification rituals in order to become clean again. Jesus often readily defied these laws, but removing the stone was a risk for these people who would have been bound by the laws concerning defilement as a result of touching a corpse or the grave itself. Not only that, but as Martha says, Jesus, he's been dead for a few days, it's gonna reek in there, this isn't a good idea. But Jesus forges ahead with the plan. Why? Participation. How many times in my own emotional downward spiral did I not shower for four days, lying around in my own filth in a house that looked like it belonged on hoarders? (laughs) Plenty. How much rage was I carrying around inside? It's so ugly, right? Also plenty. How many accusations did I make? If you had been here, this never would have happened. Just raw, unfiltered, uncensored emotion. Was Jesus phased by this emotional and probably physical stench? Further, did he tell Lazarus to move the stone? To go, get up, take a shower for God's sake, Lazarus. Everything's going to be okay. Thinking of you, praying for you, Lazarus. No, he wept. And then he enlisted other people to help. To move the stone that was trapping Lazarus, keeping him entombed in death. Jesus wasn't afraid of the smell of death. He knows that sometimes things stink, and the only way to deal with it is to face it. Not run from it, not pretend it isn't there, but to move the stone and deal with the stench. Here is where Jesus says a prayer, but it isn't a thoughts and prayers, God, please help this guy type of prayer. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know you always hear me, by the way, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. Essentially, he's thanking God in front of everyone in order to make a point to the people standing around. God is always listening, and Jesus knows this. Here's the thing. Our prayers are important, but maybe not for the reason we think. Our prayers are important for our connection with God. Think about any worthwhile relationship in your life— That relationship began with some kind of a connection. Then, assuming the relationship is a healthy one, trust begins to form. Can you imagine approaching someone you're moderately acquainted with to ask for favors? I'm an introvert, and that's horrifying to me. (laughs) Whenever I hear someone say the phrase, prayer works, it gives me pause. Does prayer work? Or does God work on behalf of the people whom He has created and loves? who reach out to him with open and sincere hearts. Our prayers aren't a mechanism for making God do what we want. They're a relationship-building tool, which helps us to dial in to the frequency of what God is already doing. And the byproduct of that is comfort and mercy and peace and all of the things that thoughts and prayers are purported to accomplish. So yes, prayers are definitely important. They're important for connection. But just as our prayers are important, so is our action, our participation. So after Jesus makes his point, maybe a little passive aggressively, which I kind of love, he calls out to Lazarus, Come out. Then it says, The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Lazarus, at this point, is still bound by the coverings that indicated that he was dead. Again, instead of Jesus telling Lazarus to take off his grave clothes or Jesus himself doing that, Jesus tells the people standing around Lazarus's family and friends, those who came to mourn his death, his community. To take his grave clothes off and release him. To participate in his resurrection. Not thoughts and prayers. Do something. An action step. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Participate in the unappealing work of taking smelly, four-day-old strips of rotting cloth off of this formerly dead person so that he can live again, breathe again. Participation. Jesus wept. He wept for the pain that Martha and Mary were experiencing. And I think he weeps for our pain too. He weeps when we get ourselves into messes and he weeps when other people create messes in our lives. And as someone who has experienced multiple traumatic losses over the last 12 years, I can tell you that I've come to rely on the comfort of knowing Jesus is with me in my pain. Not that he makes it go away because he really doesn't. But acutely feeling his presence in my darkest moments of despair brings me into a very real connection with God and a trust in his love for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, "'Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble.'" with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. How many more times can they say comfort there? So the God of all comfort, it exists with him, comforts us, passes it on to us, so that we can then take that same comfort from God and distribute it to other people. This is classic pay-it-forward, Bible style. The wounded know how to care. Those of us who have been broken knows what it means to care for the broken, And if we ourselves haven't been properly cared for in our time of need, we certainly know what would have helped. And the more we press into God during our times of struggle and grief and make ourselves vulnerable enough to throw ourselves at his feet in mourning, exposing all of our raw, uncensored emotion to him, we also open ourselves up to receive his comfort and are then more able to provide that same comfort to others who are also grieving. There are plenty of opportunities to participate in the work of grief. It can be as simple as cooking dinner for a neighbor who lost a family member, or as practical as sitting in a courtroom in a show of solidarity for an immigrant who needs that support. Last Sunday, Christy Starkweather shared her story of participation. If you weren't here, you can catch it on a2blue.org. It's definitely worth a watch. The quick synopsis is that Christy recently became part of a huge network of people across the United States who helped a woman get across the country to be reunited with her children. Christy talked about sitting with the woman while she cried and not knowing what to say, but just being present in what is probably one of the most traumatic, most frantic, most frightening times in this woman's life. That is participation. Now, we can't all do everything, of course. There are times when we, like Lazarus, are entombed, eyes covered, and hands and feet bound. In these situations, we must realize our limitations and have good boundaries. And then, there is compassion fatigue, where we can become indifferent to suffering simply due to the sheer amount of need and our inability to fulfill all of those needs. There's so much suffering in the world, and often right in our own backyard, how can we possibly participate in all of that? The answer, obviously, is that we cannot. But consider this perspective. The wonderfully brilliant and gifted writer and racial justice advocate Austin Channing Brown, who spoke here at Blue Ocean Faith a couple of years ago, recently wrote on her blog, quote, The world sucks. You've probably noticed this. And it feels like every day is an emotional battle. How much do you invest in the daily news? How much do we need to escape for our own sanity? How much do I give? How much do I volunteer? Should I go to the border, to the airports, to DC, to the march shutting down the highway? How do I balance everything else that my life requires? My friends, my work, my family, my hobbies? How do I fight despair, apathy, bitterness? So many questions. She then goes on to say, still quoting, But here's the thing I've been wondering, what if we were made for this? I don't mean that we are made to suffer or that God intended this stuff. I mean, what if instead of longing for ease, we were made for more? Made to advocate, made to dig in, made to speak out, made to dive into nuance, made for complexity, made for this moment." She still says, we still have lots of hard questions to ask, when to rise up and when to take a nap, for example. But what if we believed in the core of our being that we are strong, that we are creative, that we are here to participate in making a difference? What if we believed so deeply in our own capacity to rise to this occasion, that getting to work wasn't a tiring chore, but a life-giving opportunity to invest in something larger than ourselves? What if? End quote. quote. Believing in our ability to make a difference in the small and in the large things is the rolling away of the stone. Whether we're talking about helping our hurting next door neighbor or helping our hurting nation, the method and quite possibly the outcome is the same. The idea is not waiting for someone else to step in. Realizing that we have the ability to participate in resurrection Each and every time, someone else around us is experiencing a loss, any loss. But when we start to feel like our prayers are checking some kind of a box, or worse, we're using the sentiment of thoughts and prayers to get out of actually being present in someone else's grief, and we're now off the hook because we prayed about it, well, then it's time for a gut check. What we do isn't as important as the fact that we do it. God is always listening. Jesus said it himself. He knows what we need, and he knows what we want. He doesn't need our thoughts and prayers in order to defeat death. He just shows up. Let us be the people who also show up, the ones who aren't afraid to roll away the stone and take off the grave clothes. It's an honor to stand, sit, or lie with someone in their darkest moments, and they will always remember your participation. Let's fearlessly participate with each other and with the people in our community. So I'd like to have just a moment of silent reflection, and you can participate or not. It's up to you. I'm going to read again the verse from Corinthians, and I want you to visualize God as I'm reading this verse, as you understand God, handing his comfort to you. And then, as you receive that comfort, I want you to picture yourself just holding on to it and letting it seep into you. And as you then fully absorb that comfort, you then become ready to deliver that comfort again and again to those around you. So, we'll just take a couple moments of silence, and I'll go through the verse a couple of times, and we can close our eyes. And I'll read the verse Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. you, God, for being a God who sees us in our pain, who weeps, who participates, and who invites us to also participate. Help us to draw near to you so that we can draw near to others.